Welcome to Golf Better at Edwin Watts Golf, episode 155. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Brissell, and thanks so much for joining us. We say it every time if you're a first-time listener or a long-time subscriber or somewhere in the middle. Either way, we're just glad you found us today. And very special guest joining us today on the heels of the U.S. Open Championship this past weekend. He is a New York Times bestselling author, 25-plus years in the golf industry. He's the host of the famous Fairways of Life golf show on Sirius XM Radio and is known as one of the best interviewers in the industry. So we're going to turn the tables around and interview him a little bit. That's Mr. Matt Adams. Matt, thanks so much. It's great having you, man. It's a pleasure, Tom. Thank you for the time. Well, it's it's over the past weekend. The Marion Experiment. Did, uh, did it work? Oh, yes, man. Without question, it worked. You know, here you have a golf course that is one of the most important golf courses in the history of American golf. Here you have a golf course that easily could be described literally as a golf museum, yet it was proven to be so relative to today's modern golfers that hit the ball 290, 300 yards. And I was incredibly proud of the golf course, incredibly proud of the USGA. I just thought that whatever one could have hoped that this U.S. Open would be, it delivered on that promise. And when you think about that in the context of the weather that we had going in and then how it finished up at the end, and I'm not talking about whether you were a Tiger fan or a Rory fan or a Phil fan. I'm talking about the game and the sport and the competition itself at large, macro level. And I thought it delivered on on every single box was ticked. NBC did a good job of describing what it meant to go back to Marion from a financial standpoint. It would be like taking the Final Four and putting it in the uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse at Butler or the Super Bowl and the Yale Bowl. They planned way ahead for this, did they not? I mean, because they lost, I heard some big, big-time revenue, but it's the, from, you know, from uh, ticket sales and memorabilia sales. But they planned for it a long time, didn't they? Yeah, yeah but that's a deceptive message that, that you're receiving, Tom. The, the reality is, that the USGA brought in $10 million less than what they did their last U.S. Open, but that doesn't count television revenue. In the merchandise tent alone, they had record sales. In fact, they sold out every scrap of everything that was in that merchandise tent down to the bare shelves. And they're putting much of it, the reorders, online for people to buy as well. Now, that happens because the anticipation level for this U.S. Open at this historic venue was so high and the logo was so good that everybody wanted to be a part of it. Everybody wanted a piece of it. So there's no need to, to lament for the USGA. The USGA still made massive sums of money off this U.S. Open. And if you look at it from the standpoint of the fact that instead of having 40,000 people on the ground today, they could only have 25,000, which would account for less revenue as a result from that one source of revenue, they more than made up for it in other, in other ways, including the experience that they provided to golfers around the world on television and for those that were able to be on site. So I think that's much to do about nothing. Now, like you said, the value of that Wicker Basket logo meant so much. Do you see any other course, sim- not Marion, but another course like Marion, Matt, that this might, might happen in the future with it kind of taking it back into history but having to scale it back a bit? Well, I think Pebble Beach fits that scenario. There's, there's excitement whenever the U.S. Open goes to Pebble Beach and it's already slated to go there. I think the Pinehurst 
fits that scenario. I think Pinehurst is the St. Andrews of American golf, so that fits in there as well. So, you know, we have, whether it's spoken or not, we, we have a sort of rota for the U.S. Open in the United States. It's not a defined rota, and it's probably defined more in like a 30-year period than it is on a 10-year or 12-year period. But we have those iconic golf courses, I do believe, and I think when we get an opportunity, rare though it may be, to play at a place like Marion, even if it has some logistical issues that we all know in advance that we have to put up with, we ended up getting one of the greatest U.S. Opens of all time for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was the historical significance of the venue. Boy, the, and the, how many times have we seen the picture of Mr. Hogan hitting that one iron? I heard you on an episode a while back when you were talking with the curator, I guess it is, from the uh, uh, USGA Museum and trying to get that one iron back. Were you able to get it back there this week? I saw it on TV, but were you able to get it out on the fairway with what you were looking to do? I did, actually. I, I ended up taking Mr. Hogan's one iron back to the exact spot where he hit it on the 18th fairway 63 years and a day prior and it was the first time that the one iron had been returned to that exact spot since the evening that Mr. Ben Hogan hit it in the final round because, as you know, Tom, in those days the final round was 36 holes, the third round and the fourth round on Saturday because there still were many pros that in those days had to get back to their golf shop on Sunday. And so that night, Mr. Hogan's one iron was actually stolen from his golf bag. So... The, the club was never returned to the spot where he hit it ever until we brought it back there last week and NBC covered it. It was uh, front page news and all the newspapers and uh, the sports sections in Philadelphia. I'm sure people can find it on the internet. It was an absolutely incredible, surreal experience. It was very, very emotional for me, I have to tell you, something of, of that level. And what was really cool about it, Tom, was as we were out there on the fairway, uh, let's see, Jamie Donaldson came by, uh, Jose Maria came by, Sergio came by, and when they found out that we had Mr. Hogan's original one iron in that very spot, and I set the pose for the video feature we did and all the rest, they all came over to see it. They all wanted to touch it. They weren't allowed. I actually had to wear white gloves while I was handling it myself, but... Mike Troso, who's the curator for the USGM Museum that you were referencing, was out there with us. We got some sound from him describing the significance of the club and that chapter of history when Hyde Peskin took the famous photo for Life magazine. It was, it was really, for me, humbly, the, probably the most important thing I was ever able to do in and around golf media. I agree. I mean, I know you had Calamity Jane, too, there as well which is obviously huge, but like you said, the story about Mr. Hogan's one iron, it being stolen and never being back there, you know, Calamity Jane, I guess too, is it, is it Atlanta Athletic Club in the museum there, but, or maybe it's the USGA museum. It could be one or the other, I know, but to have that there, that was fantastic. Yeah, it's really amazing, and that just speaks to the history of this golf course. I mean, Mr. Jones closed out, his name was Holman, that he beat 11-7 and seven on the 11th green in 1930 at the Amateur, which concluded his run for the Grand Slam, a feat. But that's not the case with that one, because who do you have that, that's going to be an amateur that's going to win the British Amateur, the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship nowadays? I mean, the likelihood of that is so slim that it, it's very close to saying it's impossible to do. And, and Mr. Bob Jones did it, and it's a place right there, and that's just one more chapter in Marion's story history. 
Talk about Steve Stricker and, and the round he played yesterday. Obviously, a little bit of hiccup there. I, I heard you talking with a listener yesterday morning, and you were saying, I believe, if, if Steve Stricker were to win this, you would think he'd be a lock for Ryder Cup captain in 16. Yeah, I thought so. I, I was actually surprised and sad for Steve that he played the way that he did. It, you know, to, From an observer's eye, it looked like he was consumed by the pressure of the moment, which is, is, is sad, because if if it had been for him or for Phil or for Tiger or for Rory or for Sergio and the list goes on, if, if they had met their crossroads with fate because of the severity of the course setup, then one could question the USGA setup of the golf course and said, was it in balance? However, what Steve Stricker did had nothing to do with setup. It had to do with being consumed by the moment and by the U.S. Open nerves. That is part of the test. The USGA is very cognizant of the fact that handling the nerves is as much a part of the test of the U.S. Open as is the strategy and lines that you take off the tee or where you hit your approach onto the greens. So I was sad to see it. I, I thought that it might be Steve Stricker's day. I thought it would be a great story. I thought the same thing, frankly, about... Phil Nicholson, I, I thought it, in, a, in a lot of different ways, there were a lot of players that there were unbelievable storylines, but, you know, when it was all said and done, and Justin Rose came out as the victory, you know, here's a guy, too, that's gone through, walked through the gates of hell in the game and, and fought his way back with tenacity and conviction. So even his is a pretty darn amazing story. Yeah, before I ask you about Justin Rose, let me ask you about one other guy. Jason Day, how good is Jason Day? Well, obviously, Jason Day is exceptional. He seems to rise up to the moment at major championships. However, it does cause me to wonder where he is week in and week out other than that. Yeah. I don't know whether it's a, whether it's a question of focus, whether it's a question of preparation, whether it's a question of commitment. I do not know the answer, and I don't mean to, to, to come up with a sensationalized suggestion that any one of those is deficient. I'm saying I don't know what the answer is, but there has to be a reason why he's able to step it up at those moments on the grandest stage, and then the rest of the year, you don't hear much from him. I agree. Last question about Marion, and it's obviously our winner, Justin Rose. We had him on the podcast a couple years ago. What a likable guy, and what a player. I mean, those those shots he hit on 17 and 18, just, just right in the moment, didn't even flinch. What impresses me about Justin Rose is when you think back 15 years as the fresh-faced green amateur that holds out at Burkdale, immediately turning pro, he was surrounded by nothing but promise. And then he goes on to miss 21 straight cuts in a row, has to go back through Q school, and by that time, by and large, he was written off. At that point, people looked back and said, yeah, that was a grand moment, but it was a fluke. He had conviction in his abilities, and he stuck with it. Remember, you know, when he pointed to the sky with tears in his eyes yesterday for Father's Day, he lost his father to leukemia over a decade ago. So you think about his life and what he's gone through and how much of a march back this has been for him, although he's still a guy just in his mid-30s, but how much work it has been, conviction and tenacity to get to where he is, 
it in and of itself is a great story of triumph. And so I'm happy for Justin Rose. Justin Rose has done it all with dignity. He's done it with an accessibility that, that you don't have with all of the top players. He's, he really is a special guy and a very deserving champion. Matt Adams joining us here on Golf Better. Matt, as we talk about this year, this year is also the 100th anniversary of Francis Wiemet's victory, which really was a shot in the arm for American golf to get people to start playing golf. And we're, we're doing everything we can to get people back, you know, on the fairways, out there having fun. You think this championship that was viewed by so many is going it, it, to can, can help with that? Yeah, I think any of the majors, though, are going to help with that. You know, the Masters helps with that as well. The Open Championship, if it's compelling. The key is to bring in people that are outside of the game's core. And I would dare say that the Masters did more for it this year than Justin Rose did just because the Masters this year had, you know, marquee star idol-looking Adam Scott. There was a lot of people that don't pay a great deal of attention to golf. Basically, they turn on the golf, they go, how's Tiger doing? And especially women turned on the Masters and went, ooh, who is this? So I do think that that helps the game. When we look back in 1913, the significance of 1913 is here you have a 20-year-old kid who's a caddy. And he got idol, he loved uh, uh, Harry Varden, who was in the U.S. Open along with Ted Ray, two great English golfers. They were literally at their peak, the Tiger Woods and, and the John Daly at their peak of the golf world. And he goes out there and beats him in a playoff at, at, at Brookline. And so what it did for the first time ever is it made golf an above-the-fold news story. It made people look at it and go, wow, what an incredible story. Americans have always loved the underdog, and they did then, too. So, yeah, it's, it's a very significant story. It's a story that deserves to be celebrated because it was the most distinctive moment in American golf until that time and one of the top five since that time. And I'm just happy because I think we all tend to live in a present-day conceit where we believe that the time and place that we're in now is more important than any time that's ever come before. Is I'm appreciative of the fact that a time before, as that was a century ago, people are still taking notice of and realizing its significance. Matt, let me ask you one question about the state of the game right now. And, uh, you know, you've been in this business a long time. Square grooves a while back, it was a big issue. But, you know, these guys are the best players in the world. They work their way through it. How big yep. is how big is the anchoring thing right now? Because you got a lot of guys that have saved their career by going to this method of putting. How big is this right now? I don't think it's really a big deal at all in terms of the anchoring, the, the use of, a, of an anchored putter. To those who use an anchored putter, they're going to sit up in their chair and go, what's this guy talking about? It's a big deal to me. I don't feel like I can putt without it. But I really believe, because you got to remember, Tom, I, in most of my career I spent on the, on the equipment manufacturing side of the business, and in the last decade and a half it's, it's been on the golf, golf course operations side of the business. So on the equipment side of the business, I know the capacity of the designers to come up with new technology. Technology will have an impact to this question, whether it's the back-weighted grips that you can pick up at Edwin Watch Shops and from TaylorMade or a myriad of, of other companies or whatever the heck it is, the technology will be there. So I think within three years, we're almost going to forget that there was a conversation about whether one should anchor or not anchor a club against their body because the technology will catch up with the, the necessity of, the, of the, the stroke in such a manner. So I'm not worried about that. I think the bigger question is, is what has this whole experience done to change the template 
of how rules changes are approached from the RNA and the USGA. When they put together this period of consultancy, where they ask people for a 90-day period of time to weigh in, and during that period of time, significant groups like the PGA Tour and the PGA of America came back and said, we're against this proposal. I think that's the thing that they're going to look back on and go, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to provide a forum of public debate and dissent from golf's governing bodies. We're going to take them aside and do that in the back room. We're happy to get comments from the great unwashed in that in similar manner. But I think that what happened with this anchoring ruling was just a shot across the bow in preparations for far more significant rulings that will be contemplated in the future. For example, the potential rollback of the golf ball. Matt, you talked about your career a little bit, but tell us what's new going on now with you. You've got a new partnership, Back Nine Network. Tell us what's going on there. Back Nine Network, Tom, is a group of people that have a vision of golf, which, frankly, I share that golf is much more than just a game. It's a lifestyle. I mean, if you look at it with what and who you're associated with, with Edwin Watts, the people going to that, that shop, not simply to, to get equipment for a better game, with the, there's merit in doing that, but it's the clothing that they wear, it's the accessories that they buy, it's the vacations that they plan, it's who they hang out with, it's the furniture in their house, it's where they go to dinner, on and on and on and on and on. Game of golf is so much more than just what someone does with a seven iron in the hand, as important as that is, that's just part of it. And I assume back9network.com, correct? Yes, back9network.com is where you can go to get all the information, and they're building their studios, and they're working on their carriage clearances with cable networks and satellite television and all that. We're actually, the Fairways of Life show, Sirius XM, PGA Tour Radio's Fairways of Life show is on streaming right now on television every day from 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time Live on back9network.com archives are also on there too so well fantastic show we love your work matt we appreciate you coming on with us while you're barreling down the turnpike final thoughts for our listeners Uh, well first of all thank you for the time that you gave me today it's always fun to to talk about the game of golf and i think you'll probably agree as as a host of the show yourself that it's an incredibly humbling experience that we have and i think we all take it as a great responsibility that we have this opportunity to talk about the game and promote the game and hopefully grow the game. And the one thing that I would hope for collectively is that for all of us that love the game of golf, that we would reach out to one person who has either gotten away from the game in the last few years or maybe it's a person that's never even been initiated into the sport and take them out to the golf course. If each one of us could do that with one person, then we're going to help grow this game, and that's a benefit to all. Well, Jim Nance said it best on our last episode. It's the greatest game there is, and uh, he still believes that till today. And it's because of people like you as ambassadors to the game, Matthew, uh, that makes it so special. Thanks so much for the time. We enjoyed it. Tom, thank you very much. I think we all play that role, and it, it was an honor to spend a few moments with you. Same here. Well, right on the heels of the U.S. Open, there's probably not anybody who's more plugged into it than that gentleman right there, Matt Adams. Again, Fairways of Life is the show. And back9network.com is the network. Well, thanks so much to Matt for joining us today, and thanks to you, our listeners. And we'll do it again next time when we have another episode of Golf Better at edwinwattsgolf.com. So long, everyone.